from the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by the Rockford Writers Guild, with your host, Connie Kuntz. Happy New Year. This is Connie Kuntz. You're listening to the first episode of Guilty Pleasures Podcast. With me today in the Shumway studio is author Dan Klefstad. Hi, Dan. How are you today? I'm very well. It's great to be here. And I'm, I guess, it's, it's, well, I have to say it's an honor to be the first author you selected for your Guilty Pleasures Podcast. This is really fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. You set the standard very high. Thank you very much. Mr. Klefstad is the author of the critically acclaimed novel Shepherd and the Professor, but today he's going to read the first chapter of his new novel in progress, The Guardian. The title of that chapter is The Caretaker, which is fitting because Dan Klefstad is the most caring and careful author I know. You're very kind to say that. Thank you. You're welcome. After he reads, we're going to have a little interview. We're going to get to know a little bit more about Dan Klefstad, and we're also going to talk a little bit about his novel, which is stylish sexy and shocking about that the author wrote this chapter as an adult for adults please be aware guilty pleasures is for adults Congratulations! Out of hundreds of applications, yours stood out for your unwavering persistence to get the job done. Well put! No doubt you will deserve the eight-figure salary and opulent benefits that come with this job. But I must warn you, the more you read, the more my employer will consider you a threat if you decline our offer. If you have no intentions of taking this job, Delete this message now before reading further. This is your final warning. Turn back if you'd rather not devote every day of your prime years to one employer who demands utter secrecy and loyalty. Take a moment to reflect on which is more important, a career that allows for family and vacations or a mogul's retirement. To be sure, the job is not all work, Right now, I'm enjoying a 1948 Graham's Port, a gift from my employer and one of the last such bottles in the world. I also have enough money to retire on my own Greek island. I hope you land in a similar place when your time comes. To get there, however, you'll have to do more than drag your soul through the mud. Your hands will get dirty to the point where they'll never get clean. If you read to this point, the job is yours. So, dear trainee, it's time to meet our employer who will give final approval. Wear a suit and tie next Thursday, just before midnight. Be courteous, but not obsequious, and never say, that's impossible, or that goes against my beliefs. Say this or something similar, and everything will end abruptly. I'd also advise you not to stare at her eyes, mouth, or any part of her body. If all goes well, I'll train you for two weeks. If you're wondering if there's a word for our profession, it's pasitor, Romanian for guardian or caretaker. The only other Romanian word you need to be aware of, but never say, 
is the peasant noun for your employer and her associates. Strigoi. I'm saying it here once for instructional purposes. Uttering this could expose your employer to those familiar with Balkan folklore. Moreover, it's an insult equal to the worst human slurs. Say it and expect a cruel death. Not to put too fine a point on it, but you must also never say undead Nosferatu, meaning not dead, or vampire. My first employer, not even a century old, lives in the apartment next door. It's 1986, my sophomore year at college. I haven't met him yet, but see his roommate every night, returning with a plastic cooler. Around 1 a.m., he walks by as I fold laundry downstairs. He never speaks, but nods politely. Then one night, covered in blood, he asks when I'll finish using the last available washer. Someone tried to rob me, but I fought him off. The blood is his, he smiles. I'm Ramon. Each night after, Ramon says hi as he walks by, until the night before my final exams. As usual, I study downstairs while doing my girlfriend's laundry. She works the night shift at the hospital. But I hate studying. So I'm glad for a distraction when, an hour before dawn, a stranger enters the room. Wearing a tight vest and tie, he gazes at the period stain on one of Sarah's panties. Then he hands me a cream-colored envelope that feels ancient. Inside is $300, plus a note and key. Ramon's dead. I need you to contact his family. Last name, Valenzuela. I look up. Why don't you do it? He looks out the window. If you don't know the difference between Camus and Sartre by now, you never will. Am I right? That depends. Are you a philosophy professor or dressed like one for Halloween? He looks like he's about to rip my head off. Then he takes a deep breath and walks out. You're low on iron. Buy some red meat. I open the note. Daniel, tell the funeral home to pick up Ramon tomorrow. You, and only you, will let them in. After they leave, lock the door behind you. I'll collect the key tomorrow night. For this, I'll pay $500. I might even offer full-time work so you can stop pretending to be a student. Soren Felinius. The apartment is filled with dark furniture and portraits of nobles. I pull back heavy curtains and tie them to boar's tusks jutting from the wall. The books on the shelf are leather-bound with gold titles. Most are about one-time rulers of Carpathian Mountain Kingdoms. A knock on the door. I realize I don't know which room is Ramon's, but then I see one of the bedrooms has a lock that bolts from the inside. The opposite door opens easily, and I show the men in. Ramon lies on the bed, arms folded. The nightstand has black and white photos of his family. Next time, make sure you draw the curtains when you leave. Soren hands me the promised $500.
Does that mean I'm hired? Once you take this job, there's no quitting. What is the job? You clean the house, buy blood for me, and get $2,000 a month. The word blood would stop many people. Of course, dear trainee, you'll know I focused on the money. Where do I get this blood? Hospitals, mainly. Some are at least an hour away, so you'll take my car. There's a pickup schedule on the refrigerator. Soren waves a bejeweled hand toward Ramon's room. You'll sleep there. I sleep with my girlfriend. Sarah's fucking a gynecologist. Believe me, you can't compete with him. How do you know? Soren frowns at me. I shift my weight to the other foot. Standard week? Pardon? What days do I have off? He laughs and then glares at me. I'll tell you when I get a day off. Soren owns an 81 Honda Accord, which, at 250,000 miles, is nearing the end of its life. While good on gas, it's far less glamorous than James Mason's 63 Cadillac in Salem's Lot. For me, Mason is the archetypical caretaker, with his bowler hat, silver-tipped cane, and three-piece suit. He and his vampire, Kurt Barlow, buy and sell antiques, moving their shop to whatever hunting ground seems most promising. Barlow and Straker fine antiques, opening soon. It gives me chills every time I think about it. Not that I enjoyed the movie 100% because Straker gets killed while defending Barlow's lair. Sorry for the spoiler. In fact, every caretaker in every vampire movie dies violently. I think about each of them as I drive east to Chicago or north to Rockford. Soren never buys locally. Where's Clarence? I ask a stranger at Northwestern Memorial. Family emergency. I'm filling in for him. His lab coat seems legit, but there's no name or ID card. Clarence is supposed to page me when problems occur. Who are you? He said you'd be upset. The stranger takes a case from the refrigerator and opens it. Ten bags of O negative. That'll be fifteen hundred. No, I straighten. I said ten bags of A positive for one thousand. Fuck, he looks at the bags. She gets O negative. Who? Never mind. Come back tomorrow. There's been a mix-up, I announce as I enter the apartment. I know, a woman replies. As the door opens, I see her relaxing while Soren empties the remains of last night's dinner into her glass. Soren sets the decanter down. You'll have to go out again. Call our man at Rockford Memorial. He's tired. Look at him. Fiona extends her hand as she approaches. I never shook Soren's, so I'm surprised by her icy fingers. She holds on as I try to withdraw. Finally, I relax and look at her. Black hair and eyes, red lips, purple gown with a long slit, smooth thigh, black pearls resting above the palest breasts I've ever seen. It's okay. I'll get coffee on the road.
I can't stop thinking about her, which is how I miss the classic signs of a dead alternator. The headlights dim before the dials go black. Standing on the shoulder, halfway to Rockford, I'm ready to chuck it in. Fuck you, Soren. If you want some blood, fly out here and drain me. I tear open my collar and shout at the stars. Put me out of my fucking misery! A honk reminds me that I strayed into the road. I walk zombie-like toward the Amico station a mile back. This truck stop is busy for a Monday night, with dozens of rigs parked out in front. What'll it be, honey? I stare at the menu, trying to look normal. Just coffee. Cream? Sure. I thought you might be here. Fiona gathers her gown, exposing considerable leg as she slides in next to me. I look to see if anyone else saw her come in. Everyone ignores her, even the waitress who reaches in front of her to deliver my coffee. Suddenly, I'm hyper-aware. Here's the most beautiful woman east of Hollywood, dressed to the nines, and nobody is looking at her. My eyes are still scanning the room when I finally speak. It's not fair if I'm the only one of us who's visible. You can see me. You can also see my driver, who sabotaged tonight's order. Where? Aston Martin, center window. I see a hulking sports coupe with a steering wheel on the wrong side and a shadow behind it. I put a dollar on the table. I'll speak to her. No! Fiona hands me a foot-long scabbard covered with jewels. I slide out a blade shaped like a boomerang. When I slide it back, Fiona is gone. Who the fuck are you? The woman gets out on the right-hand side. And what are you doing with my Gurkha knife? She looks into the window. Where's Fiona? Fiona says you deliberately screwed up tonight's order. She's done with you. Done with me? She takes out a revolver and taps it against her chest. You know what I did? I got cancer. That's why she's getting rid of me. No, Tanya. Fiona steps through the door. You're trying to starve me. Wow, you're losing weight already. Tanya aims the gun. Time to lose some more. A second later, the gun falls to the ground with a hand attached. Tanya looks at her bloody stump. What the fuck? I swing again, cutting through her neck. As her headless body collapses, I stare at the blade, trying to comprehend. Fiona opens the left side door. Put her in the trunk and let's go. Watch your speed. I look at the dial. It's in kilometers. 88 and keep it there. She turns toward the trunk and sniffs. I hold up a flask. I collected some. She had cancer. So you don't... You wouldn't eat meat from a diseased cow, would you? I'm not sure I'd know. I shift into third. I didn't even know there were others. I suspected, of course. Fiona watches the moon over the surrounding farmland. Harvest moon, she laughs softly. Not much of a harvest tonight. That was some fancy knife work. That was a real sharp blade. It's yours. This too? I hold up the revolver. No, open it. I release the cylinder and see it's fully loaded. Fiona removes a bullet with her long nails. Look, she turns on the light and holds it in front of me. Is that wood? Yep, she tosses it in back. Does that work? I'm not going to find out. 
we have to ditch the car. What year is this? 1969. Now that's a crime. I ease off the highway while Fiona punches the cigarette lighter. We stop near a farm and she turns her back to me. Unzip, I do as she says, exposing a crocheted brassiere that looks a century old. Undo me. It takes a few minutes to loosen the laces. She pulls the garment away from her as she exits the car. Then she rolls it tight and stuffs it into the fuel port, leaving a few inches sticking out. I use the cigarette lighter. As the material ignites, I glance at her large breasts with nipples that are dead white. Not what you expected, huh? I look away. Sorry. I meant me owning an Aston Martin. Fiona's home has soft colors, curved furniture, and silk pillows. But the floor plan is the same as Soren's. Two bedrooms, one bath, small kitchen, large living room, all on the second floor. She stands at the edge of the hallway, wearing a pink kimono with a long-necked bird on one side. Her head rests on the wall. I rise from the couch. Do all of you own apartments? We can't maintain a yard and exterior. She walks unsteadily toward the couch, accepting my outstretched hand. I sit next to her and notice wrinkles near her eyes and mouth. How can I help? You know the answer, Daniel. Name the supplier, and I'll get it. They're not available, thanks to Tanya. We have to move. Where? First, I need to eat. Now. There's a hospital in town. Too risky. Does it have to be human? She scolds me with a look. Chastened, I look at my right arm. I could spare a pint, maybe two. I need ten. I could... Find a homeless person. She nods. Park down the street when you're ready. Her voice is brittle. I'll come down. She looks up as I enter the tent village under the bridge. Ten dollars will feed me and my baby. Can you spare it? I step closer. She looks 40, but is probably half that. She rocks back and forth, scratching bruised, scabby forearms. Where's your baby? Sleeping. All it takes is 20 to feed a family. I point to her jacket. Those look like navy pins. Are they yours? Fuck that's supposed to mean. Of course they're mine. I point to a patch on her shoulder. Corman? Rocking back and forth. USS Virginia, CGN 38. See any action? October 23rd, 1983. Huh? October 23rd, 1983, Lebanon. The bombing of the marine barracks. I pause. You went ashore for the wounded? Rocking back and forth. Just curious. Yeah, I went ashore! She continues rocking. Tried to save one life and lost three. Hmm. Guy with rebar in his throat was a goner. Should have gave him morphine and moved on. Hmm. Do you have 25 or don't you? I crouch down. I'll give you 50 if you take a ride with me. Her eyes narrow. Where? Not far. You're not a serial killer, are you? I shake my head. What do you want? What any man wants but can't get at home. She glances at my left hand, noting the absence of a wedding ring, and I can see her struggle. I offer her my other hand, but she bats it away. Well, good night. I start walking back. Fine, but no rough shit. 
The stolen car is in a secluded lot. During our walk, a battle rages in my mind. Killing her is a mercy because she's a hopeless addict. Killing a veteran, a homeless veteran, is the worst thing you could do except killing a child. She said she had a child. She's lying to get more sympathy. If you don't kill this woman, Fiona could die. She's an addict who will never get clean, no matter how much society spends on her. This woman gave her all for your freedom, and now you want to take her life? If you don't kill her, Fiona will die. Stop it! I put my hands to my ears. You're freaking me out. She stands a few paces behind me, arms crossed, silhouetted against the setting sun. I manage a smile as I open the door. What's your name again? I didn't say. What's yours? The previous month, I read about human dentistry to see if we're that different from vampires. Not much, it turns out. If you start with the upper jaw, the first tooth right of center is the right maxillary central incisor, followed by the right maxillary lateral incisor, followed by the right maxillary cuspid, or right fang in vampires, then the right maxillary first and second bicuspids. When she takes me in her mouth, I can tell which ones are missing. She hums a tune which I find comforting as I pull the twine slowly from my right sleeve. With my left hand, I wind the string above her head. I stop when it's about three feet long. She stops too. Is this going anywhere? I haven't got all night. Look at me. I am, but there ain't much to look at here. Look up here. Earlier, under the bridge, her eyes were cold and hard as flint. They're softer now as she puts on a pout. What's the matter, baby? My left hand swoops twice around her neck before I pull the rope tight. She gasps as one hand scratches my face and the other scrapes the door. I turn to protect my eyes as she kicks toward the other door, feet reaching for the window. The twine digs deeper and deeper and I think her skin might break. The rope does, instead. The door opens and she spills out, coughing. She tries to scream, only croaks. As she stumbles away, I start the car and put it in reverse. Two seconds later, I feel the impact. When I get out, I see her crawling on her elbows, dragging her useless legs. Son of a bitch, she coughs. You sick motherfucking son of a bitch. I stop next to her. I'm sorry. She spits on my shoe, but I'm focused on something she said. Were you telling the truth about the baby? She stays put, elbows sticking in the gravel. That's something you'll never know. I sigh. She doesn't say or do anything else as I straddle her back and wrap a fresh length of twine around her. She doesn't even take one last breath of cool air before I pull it tight. The adrenaline shakes my body as I drive back with Fiona's dinner. I'm also starving. If an animal crossed my path, I'd chase it down and eat it with my Gurkha. When I imagine this, I realize I experienced, for the first time, something Fiona hasn't felt in years. The thrill of the kill. 
You probably don't know this feeling. When it happens, you'll understand what's in Fiona's dreams. The panicked breathing, the breaking skin, the hot human blood gushing. It's a distant memory for her, one she gave up at the dawn of modern policing. Your job, dear trainee, is to keep those longings in her past with a donated supply that never ends. If there's a break in the chain, you'll have to be the predator. It's a guilt that's not impossible to overcome, at least I hope so. Perhaps the Ionian Sea will wash away the blood of all my victims. Perhaps the sun will blind others to the monster among them. And maybe the wine will make me forget. This vision kept me going for all those years of work. You'd do well to find your own and cling to it. I wish you well. D. Dan, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions just to find out what you're thinking and how it was the first time doing this podcast. Are you or are you not a vampire? Um, I am not, and I know people who are, but they're not the... um, you know, I've often thought of vampires as kind of metaphors. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think of people who, you know, suck your energy. And we all have, we know people like that. Yes. And um, so on the one hand, people who suck your energy are, are probably not the, the, the sort of romantic, powerful, mythical creatures that we think of. But at the same time, I think it gets to the essence of what these creatures really are, is they they own you by the time they're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it could make it really hard for those of us who are normal, who uh, the, the normal living, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when we are um, moving through life trying to pursue our own goals and we get slowed down or even derailed, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, mixing my metaphors here, uh, by these creatures who attach themselves to us and suck out our energy. So in a way, that's, that's, what, uh, that's how I view vampires. Okay. Um, did I answer your question right? Do you want me to like look at that again? And no, say, no, that sounds good. Yeah. But can you give us a couple of examples of vampires that you've known? Maybe not somebody now in your life, but from your past. Mm. So mm. it's not to hurt feelings, right? It, yeah, I have to. I have to tread carefully because I'm either talking about family or I'm talking about ex-girlfriends, and so I don't want to. <laughs> somebody who's going to listen to this podcast and say, "Is he talking about me?" Yeah. You know, so I don't want to be careful here about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just say yes. uh, that uh, we've all known. I could turn around and do this interview and and make you the interviewee and say, who are the vampires in your life, Connie? I draw a blank. I really do. Really? I do now. Well, you know, I know, the, and once I forget something, I've forgotten it. Truly. Mm-hmm. But that's not why we're here. Okay. What kind of car do you drive? I drive now. I drive a Prius. It's a really boring car that just happens to get 50 miles per hour, uh, per gallon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... I can tell you my favorite car. Let's hear it. Um, I bought a long time ago uh, a 96 Lincoln Town car. It was a midnight blue. Mm-hmm. It looked great. It's the same one that Christopher Walken uh, owns in the movie Suicide Kings. And uh, he gets kidnapped in. You know, that, that same one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my favorite car. Okay, there's a lot of mention of cars so far. There's an Austin Martin. Yeah. There's a Cadillac. There's mm-hmm. a Honda Accord. Mm-hmm. 
Are you a car guy? Not really. I mean, when I was a kid, I loved Aston Martins. I don't know why, because they were the, 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 the car that, you know, from England, it was like the first, you know, you know, they were not American muscle cars mm-hmm. or whatever, but they had a muscle car kind of quality to it. I'm talking about, this is the Aston Martin uh, DBS series, which is the late 60s. They were basically a British muscle car, mm-hmm. a hulking kind of thing, real fast, real aggressive. Not like the James Bond uh, uh, Aston Martin from a few years earlier, which is a little more refined, sporty. Mm-hmm. You know, this one was a bigger, more aggressive, more macho kind of car, mm-hmm. which is kind of odd that I gave it to Fiona. I'm still trying to figure out why I did. Oh, I thought it was because it was elegant too. It has an elegance to it, certainly. And strong. The, yeah, the interior has this lovely veneer and everything, but you know, mm-hmm. there's a stick shift and it, it's go, it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, there is a theme mm-hmm. of driving in this car because everybody has to go and get the blood. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what it's like for you, Dan Clefstead, to drive? What's a daily driving routine for you? And then what's a longer driving routine for you like? I guess in a way I'm compensating for the rather boring drives I do, (laughs) I take every day at work. You know, I I arrive at work at four in the morning at WNIJ and it's literally, it's two minutes from my house. (laughs) So uh, I could walk, Mm -hmm. but I get in my little Prius, which is this perfectly uh, good, reliable, know efficient car mm-hmm. that's just it looks it's boring so I, I I'm kind of imagining oh what would be great like what it would be like to have this fantastic car like a, a real sports car or a real like a sleek elegant Cadillac or something like that a vintage Cadillac like the 63 mm-hmm. um, that uh, that James Mason drives in uh, Salem's, Salem's lot, lot. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah so in a way I'm just dreaming Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know you have a second house up north. Mm-hmm. What's that drive like for you? Um, from DeKalb, it's an hour and 20. I go through small towns, um, like, not small towns, they're, you know, smaller cities like Marengo, Harvard, you know, uh, they go up there. And so it's, uh, I get to see large swaths of McHenry County, which is, uh, which is more rolling than DeKalb County. It's very, you know, there's a, it's very agrarian where I am, uh, mm-hmm. where, where I go through. Um, and then you get these little cities, like I mentioned. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's an okay drive. Okay. There's nothing spectacular about it. It's not, you know, Pacific Coast Highway or uh, you know Lakeshore Drive. Yes. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> but Route 23. Try it sometime. <laughs> Route 23. You heard it here first. I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you ever floss your teeth? I do not. Oh, you do not. My hygienist. Just, you know, she hates the fact that I walk in and I've still got, you know, she has to do the flossing for me. Oh. <laughs> well, I can't ask the next question, which was, have you ever drawn blood when you floss? Yeah, I have. I mean, years ago. That's why I don't do it anymore. Oh. Yeah. Well, tell My us about that. Bleed. This bleed. is a like, blood story. Let's yes, hear about it is. what right. your experience is with blood. As I'm 16 years old. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, somebody said I should floss. Maybe it was my mother. And so I'm like, you know, got the, the wax-coated string that comes out of the little tiny white box, you know. And I'm like flossing and flossing. And like, boom, I, I go a little too high. And I come back and there's blood coming out of you know, my teeth. And yes. suddenly it looks like, wow, it looked like it just bit somebody. And so you you do get that imagery. I've seen, you know, Christopher Lee and uh, Dracula has risen, risen from the grave with the same look, you know. And I thought, <laughs> this is kind of cool. I should probably floss right before I go out for Halloween. Ah, Trick or treating. See? Yeah. Uh, there is, in the first chapter, mm-hmm. Daniel is studying dentistry he's studying mm-hmm. maxillary cuspids he knows his teeth yeah he actually does a little research because he wants to see how different vampire teeth are to uh human teeth mm-hmm. i mean we all know the the, the canines or the, inc- the incisors whatever but uh he he wants to just do a little research and see 
and he discovers, yeah, they're really the same teeth, except mm-hmm. for the long, the two long ones, you know? Yes. Yeah, it was just a, he had a little time, he, he just decided to do a little research, and I needed that for a particular, for a particular scene, you know? Um, so it was kind of me reaching for a, a detail. I do this for, you know, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Reach for a detail uh, that I need to add something to the story. It's not like I'm doing a whole lot of research, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, this sounded interesting. He did, opened up a book on dentistry one time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there is a shooting scene, mm. and there are wooden bullets. Where did you come up with that beautiful detail? Wooden bullets. I've seen this in at least one movie um, where um, the, the theory is you could kill a vampire with a wooden bullet. So it's a regular brass casing, mm-hmm. but wood at the, you know, the actual, you know, the bullet part. Um, and if you can drive, you know, the theory, you know, it made sense to me. If you could ki- drive a stake through... Uh, the heart of a vampire and kill it that way, a wooden stake, mm-hmm. well, then why not a wooden bullet? It would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Yes, it sounds much cleaner. Yes, you yeah. don't have to get too close to the vampire. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that's a scary scene when you've got, you know, you put the the, the stake over the, the the heart and you're hammering it down and yeah. you know, the vampire, you know, you could claw your eyes out totally or Totally different yeah. commitment. Yeah. All right, so do you mind violence and gore in your books? Do I mind it? In my, the ones I write? Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, the, yeah, I'm trying to remember now. So you've read four of the stories, I think? Four of the stories, plus Shepard and the mm-hmm. Professor. And is there so any the, gore in any of those? I'm trying to remember. It, it just hints at it. There's a little bit of ear cannibalism in mm. Shepard. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Yes, I do remember and, that. And this one, they drink ruby, yep. which is blood, mm-hmm. and that can be grotesque. Yeah. Uh, but do we ever, do you write the violence? Do you appreciate gratuitous violence oh yeah like you know splatter porn or whatever they call it you wow. know uh, i've heard that phrase for people who love to uh, give me the gore mm-hmm. you know no i uh, i'll tell you what if the, if the scene requires mm-hmm. gore mm-hmm. i will give you gore i'm going to give it a little differently i think then i don't want to do it the way everybody else does it mm-hmm. i'm going to try to figure out okay how would this person or creature cause something gore to happen mm-hmm. you know um but I'm not going to just throw it out there just to, you know, um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, Tarantino-style arterial spray, right. you know, <laughs> like in uh, the first Kill Bill film. Mm-hmm. Just, even the camera lens gets wet, you know, yes. from it. <laughs> and he leaves it in there, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not going for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, unless there was a, a, a strong reason for why it should be included in the scene. Okay. Well, I have to say, I really respect that you don't do too much. This is definitely for adults. I can't stress that enough. Mm -hmm. But you don't hit us over the head with excessive details and excessive gore, but you take us there, and it's pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable. I hope you all read his book when it comes out. Now, I'm going to ask you, what do you want to talk about? What do I want to talk about? Um, Gosh, um, you know, I'm so interested in what readers think. I want to know about what readers are uh, tuned into and clued into. What's important to readers? You're a reader. Yes. Tell me, what do you look for in a story that, um, you know, that hooks you and keeps you turning the page from first all the way to the end? Well, I'm pretty easy. I read anything, and I read well, and I read fast. I do not like i'll tell you what i don't like tell me yeah jesus you don't like jesus i don't i don't like stories about jesus no i don't i don't like stories telling me what my faith should be oh right uh yes any faith it's Mm -hmm. not just christianity Mm -hmm. it's any i can't stand it 
Um, I can't stand when anybody tells me how to think or feel, and I think that's why I appreciate your writing so very much. Mm. You never tell me how to think or how to feel. So it's like getting a university lecture. It's like talking to your prof after hours with a drink. Okay. It's, it's nice. It opens you up. You don't necessarily have to have the specific answers. There's detail enough for that if you want it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I like books that open me up. Yeah, okay. And uh, your writing does that. And most most everything I read, because one book points to the next book, to the next book, points to other really good books. So because of you, I went to see Midwestern Voices. The panel discussion about, uh, uh, we, we invited three authors from, uh, let's see, Marnie Maminga, Chris mm-hmm. Fink, and, and Kyle White. Right, yeah. and I've read the first, I've read Whites and Finks, mm-hmm. and they're excellent books. And I found those, bo- and Maminga's will come next. Mm-hmm. They're excellent books because I've read yours that led me to this event that led me to their work, and then this is going to lead to the next really good book. So I don't run into a lot of bad books anymore. I really do like almost everything I read because there's that little homing device inside a... I see what you mean. So there's a once you find an author you trust Mm -hmm. who you're willing to give your time to, that author can lead you to another author. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. Absolutely. And in the Midwest, you're passionate about the topic of the Midwestern writers having a voice, giving a sense of place. Uh, I'm not saying you're tired of the South getting all the glory, but... Or New York. Or New York, (laughs) or Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But the Midwest deserves a little more respect than being considered the flyover state. And I felt that way since I was a little kid. And so you're creating these opportunities for people to share their writing publicly, not just hoping that somebody will buy it at a bookstore, but events Mm. where people gather. And I respect that so much because a lot of people don't take us seriously. These writers are all very different. I mean, what... Well, they have distinct voices. So distinct. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody's... The diversity is there. And a lot of people don't find us diverse, but it's there. And um, I'm thankful. Well, thank you, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you, you, you attended. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, looking forward to more. But I didn't, I didn't come here today to, to talk about other things that you've done. I didn't even mention WNIJ because I want people to have faith in you as a writer. So if there's somebody who doesn't know you or doesn't recognize your name or your voice, I want to see how they respond to your writing. Does it stand up? Does it hold its own? Without this aura of awesomeness that you have, <laughs> awesomeness. Well, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. But do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But since we're here, I might as well say you have been a host of NPR's WNIJ Morning Edition for 20 years. Yeah, and that is amazing. It just shows that you're a reliable, dedicated, interesting person. And for anybody that nobody can take that away from you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it also proves that I have three alarms that I set every night, so I can be there every morning reliably. What time does the alarm go off? Uh, the first one goes off at 2.35. Yeah. I like to take a, an hour uh, just by myself, you know, either doing correspondence. Many of the letters, re- e- emails you got from me recently have mm-hmm. been around 3 o'clock, around 3 o'clock in the morning. In the morning. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I, I get to work at 4, so I just need that little hour to sometimes I'll write a little bit or clean up something I've written, mm-hmm. fiction. Uh, uh, but I also do a lot of you know, answering emails or writing emails mm-hmm. during that time. Oh, I have a question about mm-hmm. your writing of mm-hmm. books, not mm-hmm. emails. And that is, instead of, we read your books, you don't take us to Starbucks, we don't see a man bun, 
Hmm. People aren't on their cell phones. They're not on their iPads. You don't do that kind of detail. You use the political icons of that time period. Hmm. And I think that's great because it connects with the reader's mind and it reminds the reader where he or she was at that point. And I'm just wondering, did you make that, I know you're a history person, major and master's degree. Did you make that conscious decision as a writer to use politics as your backdrop, not contemporary details like man buns and cell phones? Right. So Bill Clinton saying in the late 90s, I did not uh, have sex with that woman versus the man bun detail or, you know, what is the price of a latte these days? Mm -hmm. You know, right. Yeah. Um, That also comes from a news background. So Mm -hmm. I I, uh, the signposts in my life and I think for many people. Mm hmm. Well, I'm, I'm banking on this. Uh, that, 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 I'm betting on that. that most people have um, important signposts in their life that relate to political events or something that happened in the, wo- in the world that may have been, you know, a war, an attack, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in, in The Caretaker, we meet um, a, a former sailor. Uh, the, the homeless person is a, mm-hmm. a, a, home, a veteran, a Navy veteran. And we, we she talks briefly about the... Uh, the uh, the killing of the U.S. Marines mm-hmm. in Beirut, and um, that was a major moment for me in 1983. I was 20. What was I? I was 16, I think, um, 15 or 16, and, and that was just like this great awakening. Oh my God, there are uh, people who, first of all, what are those 200 Marines doing over in this country called Lebanon, in the city called Beirut? What what what? You know, and who attacked them? So my my mind began to make all these associations and trying to figure out doing, you know, I was investigating what's going on, reading the newspapers and reading Time magazine. Please notice he was 15 years old and he cared this broadly. When I was 15, I cared about going to Spencer Gifts and buying <laughs> a toy. He cared at age 15, and now you're 50, and mm. you still care, and you've made a profession out of it, and you're a writer because of it. Mm-hmm. This is. It's, it says a lot about you as a young person. Yeah. It, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's funny. Um, 15, and you care about Beirut. Uh, well, here? yeah, it was really, it was, it, it, was, it kind of kept me up at night, you know, just thinking about it, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I watched a lot of the TV news, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, you know, uh, whether it was CBS or NBC or, or, or ABC, it was still mostly three networks still at that mm-hmm. point, although cable was coming on. Um, yeah, I watched a lot of that. Um, you know, I think my mom didn't like me watching cartoons or whatever. She yep. said, watch the news. She said, watch the news. She said, watch the news. Okay. And I did. And for whatever reason, I, I think it really did help shape my, uh, not only my writing, but I think my entire worldview. You know, how I look at the world and, and see my place in it. Well, yeah. I have to ask, since you mentioned your mother, mm-hmm. can you tell us, did she help shape why and how you write such strong female characters. Probably. Um, she's one of the more um, powerful and intense figures in my life, mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. in my life. Um, or she was until she died in uh, 2009. And uh, she was always a very strong person. Um, always, you know, people really, really, I remember uh, total strangers would meet her and just, like, want to talk to her for an hour or two, you know, take all of her time. They... She was a very magnetic person mm-hmm. and um, also a very creative person, mm-hmm. a very strong opinions, and uh, just a very strong person. And I just, uh, I really admired her. 
Mm-hmm. You know, even when I was just a kid trying to figure out, oh, who is this person? Yes, she's my mother, so sometimes she's annoying. But I always, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I always um, just really admired her. That's neat. Yeah. Um, can you tell us who some of the strong women are in your life now? My wife, Susan, is an extremely strong person, uh, very loyal to those she loves, mm-hmm. and um, has an energy, a life force about her that is sometimes overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is one of the, how do I say this? You know, there's, you hear about, you know, good people and it's hard to describe what is a good person, but somebody who embodies everything that is good in the world, mm-hmm. that's Susan. Um, she um, has what I call these charming little flaws where she just goes off the handle emotionally <laughs> uh, on a tangent and it, it is kind of funny to watch. Um, but yeah, I, take, I have to step back and take a break from that and then come back after she's calmed down. But yeah, she is really one of the, um, I, one of the few people in this world I trust completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Any other strong women that are not your wife or your late mother that you'd yeah. like to give a little shout out to? Um, I think they know who they are, and um, I don't want to be, I'm not being coy or, you know, whatever, but I uh, I don't want to give too much away, I, guess, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap up this little interview? I just want to say it's it's so great to be a part of this, um, this podcast and, of course, a part of the Guild. I love being part of this process where... You and and Jesse, who has been uh, sort of being the theater director, if you will, of these readings, Mm -hmm. uh, is helping me um, uh, discover these characters, how they sound uh, as I'm reading them aloud for the first time, Mm -hmm. you know, in in public, if you will. And um, so that's this whole part of discovery is really helpful to me as a as a creative person. Mm -hmm. This process has just been really. nurturing to me as an artist fantastic well and i should let the listeners know this is our first time doing this so the process is messy which i love and i embrace but it's also a little bit mortifying and frightening because you're vulnerable you're putting yourself out there it's the first time the work's going out there i'm just meeting you for Mm -hmm. the first time um it's a scary thing and we started with the best that's you oh well yes yes to say that he is the best uh, because we want this to be the best and we thank you for taking this first step with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to, to reading more with, um, in the years to come. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. The Caretaker originally appeared online at Crack the Spine and is forthcoming in the 2018 winter-spring edition of the Rockford Review. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, The Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, Freeman AV, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coons. Thank you for listening. Now go write.